0: Hello and welcome to my Ruta showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. It's been about a month since our last podcast with uh, Minister Pascal Donohue. He was in, of course, to talk about his life in finance and the arts, because he is a huge fan of the arts, particularly of uh, books and music. This time out, I have the good fortune to be interviewing one of his favourite writers and one of my favourite writers, the Irish author Emily Pine. She'll be best known to you as the author of the book Notes to Self, a collection of essays which is so honest and so clear-sighted about subjects that have been very important to her, but also that apply equally to the rest of us. In Notes to Self, she speaks about really tough subjects, including miscarriage, infertility, family alcoholism, gender equality issues, and a lot more. It's a book that I picked up and couldn't put down. And I know many other people had the same reaction to it, since it's been published by Trump Press, it's been republished in Britain and it's coming out in a dozen countries. It's also won awards, including the Book of the Year Award in uh, the Ampust Irish Book Awards. And Emily has become well known as a public speaker. She's already Associate Professor of Drama at University College Dublin, but she now also often appears at literary festivals and gives master classes. There was a slight delay, by the way, to me releasing this podcast. Uh, There was a delay of a few days, which I wasn't expecting. I said on my Twitter account, at Nadina Regan, that it was coming up. And then I just disappeared for a few days and did not talk about it again. And there is a reason for that, which I hope isn't an overshare, but I'm going to tell you. Um, I actually got engaged um, last weekend. And yeah, I am delighted and thrilled. And there's been... fair bit of celebrating with family and I'm actually mentioning that not only because I wanted to explain but also because just the thinking about getting married it also leads you to thinking about a lot of the topics that Emily Pine also gets into in the book Uh, topics around what it means to be female uh, in this day and age and about the very structures and the institutions that we've all been born into and grow up within. Things have changed so much in Ireland over the past few decades. We have new freedoms, there are movements which have helped us achieve greater equality but there are still many issues that need to be looked at. There's this point in the podcast where she quotes another writer, Maggie Nelson, who wrote a book called The Argonauts and Emily is talking about how Maggie has said that giving birth is both the most radical thing you can do in your life and also in a way the most conservative and sometimes I think that marriage can be a bit like that as well it's incredibly traditional but it's also incredibly exciting and mad and it's a new life phase so I guess I've been thinking about that quite a bit as well. This is, as regular listeners will know, because I'm always banging on about it, um, an independent podcast done for pure love. So, if you do enjoy the podcast, if you're listening and you want to support it, all I would ask is if you have a minute to spare to pop onto iTunes and like or subscribe or write a little review. Or even if you don't have a minute to go onto iTunes, if you're talking about podcasts to your friends, Maybe mention this one uh, because it is the best way for me uh, to get the word out there about it. You can listen back to previous episodes with uh, the likes of Graham Norton, John Ronson, Tracy Thorne, Pascal Donoghue, as I was mentioning, and Kevin Barry. So they're all lined up and uh, we've a lot of great people to come. And by the way, speaking of recommendations, shout out to Peter Fleming. Well, his artist name is Cinema, who has done the beautiful new... uh, intro jingle that you will have heard at the start of the podcast. Peter is a brilliant Irish artist and uh, strongly recommend checking out his tunes on Spotify and elsewhere. There's a lovely one called Floating actually with Chris Leach that I would particularly recommend, but it is all good. This particular podcast with Emily Pine, by the way, was recorded in my own house in Dublin City Centre and that day, just to mention, it was pouring rain So very occasionally you might hear um, a noise, bitter patter. I hope it adds atmospherics and doesn't take anything away from it. You can let me know Uh, of course uh, on Twitter at Nadina Regan or you can go to the uh, show page directly at My Roots Are Show. As always love getting a bit of feedback. I'm on Instagram as well at Nadina Regan. So do let me know and always as well let me know if there are guests that you'd particularly uh, love to have on the podcast and uh, I will do my best to um, see if we can make something work in that regard. All right, here we go. This is Emily Pines. My roots are showing. My roots are showing. You are very welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to have you here. And uh, just to start, just to say, um, your memoir, Notes to Self, well, I call it a memoir, a collection of essays. It's one of the bravest books I've ever read. Uh, it's a book that takes in so many subjects that people would find painful to write about, even in isolation. And we'll talk about some of those as we go on but to mention them very briefly now separation, alcohol abuse uh, infertility, drugs. You're writing about these topics and you're doing it as an associate professor uh, in UCD, in drama. So you're not doing it from a position of anonymity you're doing it as somebody who is a professional with students. Tell me to start about the decision to bear your soul and write what you've written.
1: So initially, I started writing for myself, and I think that's part of the twist of the title, "Notes to Self." That my I was my own audience, and that's the way it had to be in order to be as honest as you put it. And sometimes people have asked me subsequently, "Oh, you know, did you think about taking a pseudonym or making or putting kind of novel on the front or something?" and The entire point was actually to be honest and it's funny when you say oh you know i'm an associate professor and a a job that i love i think that's the reason why i could do it because i feel you know i feel finally safe in my life and secure and you need to have that sense of security to take a risk like this so i started writing for myself and then it took me two years to get up the courage to send it to a publisher and i was really lucky i sent it to tramp press and their small feminist um, Irish press, Lisa Cohen and Sarah Davis Goff, and they took me for lunch and it was one of the most surprising conversations of my life where they asked me, would I write a book? And it was so far beyond what I had expected. Uh, I was totally blown away by it. I said it to my, rang my partner afterwards and he said, yeah, that's what I thought that they would say. And I was like, okay, you could have mentioned it to me. And I felt like, they gave me and I've said this before I felt like they gave me permission they said that they liked the way that I wrote and they liked my voice and I thought but I don't I don't have a style because in my head literary style was something that was much more stylish like stylistic that it had this really kind of strong nature to it and they said no no we really like your directness and I thought oh okay right I I don't have to try and dress it up or put in metaphors that I can just tell it how it is this is how it sounds in my head and it's funny because now I think I can't believe I was waiting to be given permission and but once it came it just poured out of me and it's funny because the first draft is quite similar to the final draft because in sometimes I think I had been telling myself these stories or saying it over and over in my head silently for years never allowing myself to admit it to anyone else. I mean, there's so much in the book that I literally had never told anybody in person before. And I found that the empty page, and I wrote it longhand, so it really was a page. I found that the empty page was a way of me getting it out of my head. And I started, I mean, madly, I started sleeping better. And I started to make sense of my own life in a way that I never had done before. And it was really only an very late in the in the process that I realized other people would read this too and had this incredibly lucky experience working with Sarah and Lisa that they don't normally do this I would send them the book in discrete essays the finished first drafts of each essay and they normally would read entire manuscripts and so I felt like I was writing it in this safe space with them where they were editors but their first job was to support me to get there and then afterwards came the kind of the critical bit and it was funny because I kept saying you know you haven't told me that it's terrible yet and Lisa said I Emily mean, you're such an academic that you think you know you don't believe praise if it's good you know it has to be has to have some kind of negative spin on it and they got me there and w- it, it was incredibly kind of intimate experience because You know, I remember Sarah saying to me, she says, you know, I've thought that loads of times, but I have never seen it written down on the page. And there was a it was a discovery for all three of us and thinking and they'd never published nonfiction before. And I'd never written a book like this before. So it really felt like a
0: new thing that we were doing. You talk in the book about cultural silences and silences that women often bring to physical and emotional experiences that are deeply traumatic for example miscarriage do you think that at the point when the point came for you to write and publish this book that we had reached a point in culture where women are more likely now to talk I think that finally there is a small
1: amount of cultural space Within which women can now talk. And I think, you know, we've seen so many signs of that, both in terms of like literatures, more women publishing. And I mean, women are the ones who mostly buy books, right? So that makes sense. But also, you know, it was last year we could see it in the run up to the referendum that it was women and men, but women in particular, telling their stories that led not just to cultural change, but to how women's bodies are legislated being changed and that's incredibly powerful and so I think it it means something to me to be a writer in this context, in this country and that's why it meant so much to me that the book has been read by so many people in this country because it feels like being part of a much larger conversation and it's funny, I was thinking about it the other day because I, me- I was remembering back to kind of 1990, 1989 with uh, my friends and we were all kind of 13, 14 around then And we were talking about how we would emigrate as soon as we possibly could, because we could not imagine being able to make a life for ourselves in this country. And I like to think that that's not a conversation that 13 and 14 year olds are having now, or certainly not in the same way. And that's because of. That's partly because of women writing their stories and talking about their stories and, and refusing that cultural silence. And and I also think, and this is kind of in the aftermath of the book, that I realise there are lots of reasons behind silence that not everybody has to break it. Some people need to preserve their silence and they should have the right to do that, that we kind of have a right to silence as well as a right to voice. Um, but we also then... If you have a right to voice, you have a right to be listened to. And I think that's the thing that's changed. It's not that women were silent. It's that nobody was really listening.
0: Well, you mentioned your younger years. Let's go back in time to when you were a kid. And you grew up, actually, a few streets from where reco- we're recording now in Dublin 8 and city centre, more or less. And what were you like as a as a young kid? <laughs> that's funny. I suppose I wrote a
1: book about it and I probably find it quite difficult to articulate I was really bookish. Unsurprisingly, I became an academic. It was a perfect career for someone who would. I was not great with other people. I was fine with at- talking to adults, but I didn't really know how to talk to other children. I was a really lonesome child. I think I didn't know how other people worked. which sounds like an odd thing to say, um, but it was it was kind of how I felt. It was always felt like I was standing on the outside of everything, and so it was easier to read books, um my parents had split up when i was 5 and how i who i was is indivisible from that fact because it changed everything and i think i had been a much more confident child before that and there was a kind of social change that came with that i mean we moved house it was a ba- very basic thing to dublin eight um, but in school you know you just you knew that there was something and you could I couldn't have said it obviously at the age of six or seven, but I, but I still knew. And I think that would that is one of the reasons why it was harder for me as a kid. Sorry, I sound like I'm blaming my parents and I really try not to do that. Uh the other side of that is that I'm really I was really independent as a kid and I'm still like that now. And I always I kinda of always got to do what I wanted to do because I was kind of quiet and I got good grades in school and, and kept going and
0: you talk, though, I mean, you say in the book that I was a lonesome child. And there's a couple of moments in the book that are really heartrending, although you don't uh, you don't indulge in self-pity, but you describe one scene where somebody you had a phone call on a Saturday afternoon. and when you picked up the receiver, it was a bunch of kids who'd all gone to a children's party that they hadn't invited you to, and you just heard them giggling down the phone. So that was your kind of experience, which must have been very hard.
1: It is, and I had actually, it was my mother who reminded me of that and when I was writing and I said, oh, you know, I'm writing about being a kid and she said, oh, I remember that day and she said, you were inconsolable. And I remember the phone, convers- I remember the phone call really, really well and I don't really remember the aftermath of it. But I, I also think that's how groups define themselves, right? By having someone else that they point at or laugh at and I have, I have always been the defender of the person who gets left out. It's so cruel, actually, how groups are are defined by ex- by exclusion rather than inclusion often.
0: It's really important, I think, for people who are listening from outside of Ireland to understand the cultural context of the times and why exactly there might have been exclusion. Because divorce at the time wasn't a thing in Ireland. Separation wasn't a thing. Oftentimes... Couples did separate, but they lived in the same house in different beds and different bedrooms if they could manage it and nobody talked about it. So for a couple, in the case of your parents, to actually physically separate uh, for it to be known, uh, for your parents not to even speak to each other and to communicate through notes passed to you or to your sister. uh, That would have created a kind of social form of exclusion uh, that in a very Catholic country would have been almost... um, a, a structural uh, schism that you couldn't have gotten around.
1: No, and it's it's
0: really strange
1: now. It seems like unimaginable, you know. And I remember campaigning for the last referendum for repeal the eighth and saying to people, you know, particularly older people on the doorsteps who would have were ambivalent, and I said, but remember nineteen ninety five when the divorce referendum passed by a few thousand votes you know and I and I said the the scare stories then were we're going to become like the UK we're going to have a soaring divorce rate and I was like marriage rates actually have gone up since then and the world did not end and things did not crumble and it's funny you've got to remind people of how much this country has changed I mean as you say people were spitting up but nobody was talking about it and I don't think I knew that then, that people's parents were who, who were technically together were really not together, you know, and you just got a sense of it. But again, those things that you pick up as a child unconsciously, and and we must have, I mean, we just spent the 1980s carrying them around. All of this shame, all of this guilt, and not, not being able to articulate it or being able to talk about it. And divorce was like the least of it. I mean, when you think of... Anne Lovett, a teenage girl who died and um, giving birth, and she had concealed her pregnancy. All of the stories that have come out since then of of the kinds of ways in which such narrow minded, lack of compassion, I think, for for human mistakes or or just the things that happen to us as humans, you know, that was middle of the 1980s and it was around the same time as an abortion referendum which had made abortion unconstitutional, not just illegal. I remember hearing that story in school and it could have been used to to, to say to us, if you're in trouble, tell somebody because otherwise we, we don't want this happening again to a girl who's, who dies alone. But it wasn't, it was used as a nightmare, um, a kind of, you know, a threat. Basically don't don't let this happen to you and when I think back it's just extraordinary as a way of terrorizing children and and you know growing up I remember walking to the to the library in Rathmines and there was a wall with um you know abortion numbers like painted up onto it and and just just growing up in an environment where that was you you know you're 8 years old walking past a wall and it just says if you need an abortion phone this number and knowing that 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 was probably really I mean probably a fake number but like probably a really really scary thing to have to
0: to have to do certainly for me growing up in a small town in West Cork in Skibbereen it always felt like the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to a girl as a teenager would be to fall pregnant because what on earth would you do your life would be indescribably altered and how on earth could you possibly get to england we lived in a time pre internet you know two tv channels uh like yourself i was a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s and times were just so indescribably different it's it's hard to even get your head around it but for you um You had the situation of of your father who was drinking an enormous amount. He was an alcoholic. And your mother who was actually because there was no separation, there was no divorce. Your mother was carrying the can financially for you and your sister as, as well as herself. So there was no provision for you. And you describe in the book, you know, your dad occasionally having suicidal thoughts that he was communicating to you. Down the phone, and I wonder if, at a certain point, very early on, if you felt yourself transformed into the parent.
1: Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, I wouldn't have put it until like that until much later on. But I remember talking to somebody a few years ago, and he his mother is alcoholic, and he said he had this moment where he looked at him and he and thought, "When did I give birth to you?" And I think it's a really odd phrase, and might not make sense to anybody who hasn't gone through that experience. But that's ex- I thought that's exactly it. And that re- that reversal, I always adored my dad and didn't get to spend that much time with him because we didn't live with him. And so when I did get to be around him, you know, we would kind of play along and be his like star little daughter and stuff. And if he was drunk, you know, kind of play games with him. And then, but, you know, as anyone who has an alcoholic in their family knows, their mood shifts incredibly quickly. So you could go one minute from being entertaining little daughter to just being screamed at. And so it was really unsettling and unstable uh, way to grow up um again and sometimes again I think I wouldn't be who I am today um but I, I you learn very very early on and I can see it in my sister as well to be you're the responsible one you're overly responsible and you're overly serious and I remember moving out of home and I mean I'd already gone wild in my teenage years but moving out of home in my 20s and I didn't kind of lose the run of myself the way that I did when I was a teenager kind of drinking and drugs but it was more this sense of, of freedom and it's not that I had been, I had felt myself to be in a trap before but just this sense of pure independence and it was extraordinary experience and I still feel it and it's funny a friend of mine and I were just talking the other day and we were saying that she would have had a similar childhood to mine and uh, she said she still gets this feeling when we and I have exactly the same thing when you go into a supermarket and you think oh I'm in charge I it's, ha- it's so strange because I don't know how many it's not going walking to Tesco is not normally a liberating experience but you you walk in and you think oh I get to decide what's for dinner and and I can pay for the the groceries. And that was actually always a really stressful thing when we were both kids was financially. And then also, you know, knowing that you had kind of no control over anything. And so there are enormous compensations to be being an adult.
0: Well, you were very conscious, too, of gender equality.
1: Yeah, I mean, my mum is a feminist warrior. She would never describe herself that way. She you know is an incredibly balanced and logical person who I mean we grew up in an all-female household even the we used to joke that even the hamster was female and uh, it was always it was always understood that when girls could do anything that boys could do and should do and that you know you should become as educated as you possibly could and so that you could articulate your claim on that. I think that because of the way we grew up in the 80s and 90s, that was understood to be in terms of work, right? So feminist equality meant being able to get a a job or a salary as good as a man. And I think now one of the things that I think is amazing looking at how kind of feminism has developed is the extent to which that has transformed into other areas of life as well you know there was that thing of like a oh, women have to do everything because women can do everything in the 80s and the 90s and now I think we're in a different way where we're talking about well women can admit to being vulnerable you don't have to always have this performance of invulnerability or empowerment that you could admit that things are hard and I th- that that seems to me to be much healthier in lots of ways.
0: Yeah, so we're not wearing the shoulder pads anymore <laughs> to try and look like men. We're just sort of saying, look, it is acceptable to say that, you know, for example, um, Michelle Obama's memoir, readily uh, she admits to inadequacies or issues, and that is forms part of her strength. It's, it's because she's uh, able to admit it that it becomes a kind of a power play in a way.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I also think there's something enormously empowering about somebody who is further up the... I'm sorry, I'm going to mix metaphors horribly here, but like, you know, further up the ladder or further down the path or whatever than you saying, oh, I find it hard too, because if the the person at the top is kind of performing this impenetrable vision of success and you don't feel that successful, then that that feeling of imposter syndrome I remember first hearing the word imposter syndrome and somebody explaining it to me and I thought oh amazing if it's a syndrome it must be all of us right that go through this it's not just me and that's that's again it's very it's it's a kind of solidarity is what it is and I think that is a much stronger platform to stand on than than a woman just desperately trying to make it in a man's
0: world world you won scholarship after scholarship uh you went to Trinity I believe that was you went to Berkeley as well as uh, studying film and I believe it was when you walked through uh the Gates Trinity College that you first thought should I be here you know is this I mean that was that first case of imposter syndrome yeah
1: it was um I guess I mean I barely scraped this is what I mean about my mother being a warrior like I very nearly failed out of secondary school. And my two closest friends never never finished school.
0: Was this, I mean, you, you mentioned the book that you went through three three secondary schools in possibly as many years or something like that. Like, this is the thing that I struggled with a small bit in the book, because I was like, you were so wild, but you were obviously so academically gifted. So I don't really understand how the two managed to coexist.
1: Well, I'm very good at exams, right? And that is... That is the way you get through school. So, I mean, I I think that's changed now with kids doing more projects and I think that suits lots of different styles of learning. And as a teacher, I could talk about that for a really long time and how much more beneficial that is as a kind of learning um but for me I was just I was very good at learning things and and the skills that I had learned at home which were read a lot and talk a lot and tell stories worked really well for writing good a- articulate answers to exams one of the reasons I didn't stay in school was because I was I mean partly because I was just troubled in lots of ways but also because I was bored right and it it sounds <laughs> it sounds like kind of a patronizing thing to say but there I wasn't being treated like an intelligent person and I don't think any of us were in the class. We were being treated as a room full of unruly kids who should just learn off things.
0: Which schools were you in?
1: Uh, I was in um, schools in, mostly in London and um, I eventually... Of course because
0: you moved there at 14 with your mother.
1: Yeah so I went to one secondary school in Dublin which you know by the time I was leaving here I had kind of stopped really going to with any regularity and that was it. It was that rather than I mean, that was one of, par, par, one of the symptoms of the problem was that rather than say I'm struggling or I'm having difficulty, I would just opt out and I would just not go to school. And that was obviously like a danger flag. And then by the time that kind of rolled around, we were already moving to London. And so I went through a couple of schools there. And I eventually ended up in a school which was specifically for kids who have trouble with school. And I mean, kind of genius person who set it up uh it, the classes didn't start till 10 o'clock in the morning and went on till six o'clock in the evening on the basis that one of the reasons for kids, for people like us having difficulty was we weren't good at getting to school at 8.30 in the morning and doing a general assembly and all the rest. And there was no uniform and you could bring coffee to class. And I mean, it sounds, I mean, it sounds remarkable, but it really, really worked. And we were, everybody was first name terms, including the teachers. So I was taught English by Steve. And that level of equality and this is what i mean like by we were i was suddenly being treated like i was an intelligent person worthy of having a conversation with it was transformative and it was basically what we do in university but at school level and i it was really really important for me and my mom saw the that that was possible and kind of got me into that school which was really hard and um and then that was the that was the way of of basically not crashing out
0: before you got there, though, you were clubbing, you were living at large, you were completely underage, and there is a moment in the book where you wind up not exactly hanging out with Kurt Cobain, but certainly existing in his space. So maybe tell us about that.
1: I know it's funny that, that my non-Kurt Cobain story—the day, the, the night I did not meet Kurt Cobain—I um, yeah, we were. I was going to festivals, and I mean, you know, it's on the one hand, I, and I talk about this in the in the book. It's quite dark in terms of. That's not where children should be hanging out, around adults and taking drugs and drinking and and all the rest. Um, But at the same time, I had a hell of a lot of fun a lot of the time as well. We're going to lots of music festivals and I knew it was exceptional. I knew that I shouldn't be doing it. And there's a kind of certain adrenaline rush you get from breaking the rules. So... uh, I was at Reading Festival and that was the year that Nirvana played and I was backstage and then I was at a party at a hotel and Cobain was there and I thought, I mean it's hilarious now but I thought, you know, with the guile of a 15 year old I, I couldn't believe um, that it, he didn't seem as cool as I thought he should be he wasn't kind of rock star behaviour, he was kind of smoking silk cut blue or, or, you know, like oh, Lames,
0: <laughs> not even rather
1: late <laughs> like, uh, I know, and I was like, oh, I'm so much tougher than that and uh and and left um left him to it but uh yeah you know in a weird way he was probably having a quiet moment at the bar just relieved that there were no fangirls kind of mobbing him so i probably did the right thing
0: we were talking a little bit about the idea of women having it all or, or not having it all or th- what exactly the expectations are uh, these days around what's possible and for you once you started on that academic track uh You did exceptionally well, as I mentioned. Uh, Skald, I think, in second year, Trinity, uh, studying English. Uh, Then you you took up a position in York, um, which was temporary, but then moved to a permanent position in UCD. Uh, So doing really, really well academically. And it is possible, I think, for a lot of women to become incredibly focused on the next goal, the next goal, the next goal, the next goal. And you hit a point, I think, at around thirty-three, where you and your partner started to have that conversation about whether or not motherhood or parenthood was something both of you wanted. And I wonder if you think now that even at—I mean, I think of thirty-three as as very youthful. Mm. But do you think now that it was too old to be having those thoughts?
1: No, I really don't. I mean, if if I'd been able to have a child, as many many 33 year olds and 34 and 35 and 40 and 42 year olds are able to do without a problem and we wouldn't be having this conversation you know it was only that it was a problem and and there's a there's there's a couple of things there that uh, we were having conversations because it wasn't something that I knew from the age of Five, oh I definitely want to be a mum. I always love kids and to be around kids. But then I had as you have pointed out, I mean you really did your research, you? um, as you pointed out, I really I was really involved in my in my academic life and there's something about lots of jobs that are in the arts in some way that feel vocational, that where your job is bigger than nine to five and not because, I mean, lots of precarious jobs out there that you have to work endless hours just in order to pay the rent. But this was, you know, my job is bigger than that because I, it's, I feel so identified with it, right? I involve myself with it. And so it felt like a risk to step out from that and to decide to become a parent. And so in a, in a strange way, when I, and also, if I, before that, I didn't have an income. You know, where, where was I going to put this child? <laughs> like, You know, uh, it was a, there were lots of practical reasons that you don't have the conversation until later. And then it, it didn't happen for us, and, I, and I'm really open about that um, in the book. But at this, uh, and this might sound strange, but at this point, I almost feel like it's my duty to start saying, I'm fine. It h- broke my heart not to become a mother, because, and we tried for years it broke both our hearts but I'm on the other side of it I wouldn't have written this book I wouldn't have the life that I have now I wouldn't maybe I wouldn't be as close to my nephew as I am if not if I had if I had actually achieved that like become a mother and I, I think that's maybe you know we were talking about cultural space and silence and I think that's there's still not enough space for that joyful experience of not mothering Uh, you know and I wouldn't have predicted that I would be saying this and and I'm not saying this is some kind of consolation prize there are days that I wake up and I think oh thank goodness I dodged a bullet and it's a really strange thing to carry these two very contradictory emotions inside the one which is grief that I still feel for this other for this for the child that I deeply imagined who i who i miss i miss this 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 child who i didn't have and at the same time be so fulfilled and so happy in my in in this motherless life and i find that enormously provocative and in a really good way that uh, i think i think there's a lot there's a big conversation to have about creativity and on how if you are a parent, you have to p- give a lot of your creativity to your children. I realise, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, Anne Enright always says that the pram and the hall is a great stimulus to writing. So,
0: As opposed to the enemy.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to create rules here and say either or. But that for me, I just see that I, there's a huge dividend for me in not having had kids. And I never imagined I would say that. But I'm really happy.
0: You took the decision after several years of trying and you did go to some doctors, but you didn't really go down the IVF route. That's a big decision in, in your life. And many women, many men and women will wonder about that. Uh, so can you take me through that process? Because that's a very hard psychological process as well. I know a lot of people who've gone down that route and, and found it so, so tough and so financially tough as well and it can really create problems for people for couples so were all those factors part of it? they really were
1: i mean it was really not an easy decision for either of us it's not a decision that we've ever regretted making to not do ivf and i really worried that i would i really worried that i would get too far down the line and i'd be looking back thinking oh if we tried maybe we would have you know been one of the successful ones Maybe if I had, and I say this in the book, maybe if I had had friends who had been successful, but I had friends who had been through rounds of IVF and I had seen just, I mean, apart from the financial strain, just the emotional strain of it is is huge as a process and they had not been successful. And I thought, we both thought, let's not do that to ourselves, that there are, there are better alternatives for ways to live your life. It did mean that did mean that we closed that chapter, but like i said i i don't i don't regret it and i i think that there should be more psychological support actually for couples or or women in those scenarios there was very little and in order to help like in order to help you come to that decision because when you have when you're at the point at which you're con- considering ivf you're already incredibly vulnerable and you're already at the point at which you've gone through years of heartbreak and hope and loss and you know so you're not maybe in the best position to be making a decision that will that will cost you a lot and i'm so thrilled for people who do it successfully like so happy i think that we should celebrate that but i also think that i also think that the people who i have to be careful about what i say here because i'm not trying to malign anybody because I believe that the doctors we saw, for example, you know, it really did make them very, very happy when people got pregnant, but it's also a business. It's a private business. I wish there were more transparency about that in Ireland. I mean, I know people who have had um, IVF in other countries, for example, and there is a lot more transparency around success rates and so on with clinics that there isn't in Ireland, and I, I think that would be beneficial to couples making that decision.
0: Do you mind me asking which countries? Because I think some people listening may, may already have been through this process and be wondering, you know, is there advice you'd give?
1: No, I mean, I, I really don't have advice. I know people who have been um, to the Czech Republic and to Spain and, you know, have varied experiences. So it's not that I'm recommending elsewhere, but I'm d- But what I would say is that if you compare the... Regime here and the regime in other countries there are major differences. There's major differences between IVF in Ireland and IVF in the US, and in terms of how embryos are implanted and so on. And so, you know, I think and it's I'm a researcher, right? So that's what I did when we were faced with like the being told, oh, you know, you have X percentage chance and stuff. I was like, okay, let's look it up, let's see what it is, and and so I was kind of comparing all these things. But I think there are lots of people who. Who that isn't their instinct to do it, and and who don't have a choice, and and so on, and I just think it's a really, really fraught area, and and it's so emotionally charged that it's re- it's a very difficult decision. And I say in the book, if I because I think the cost, the initial cost would have been about nine thousand euro. And I say in the book, if I had, if it was a case of giving somebody nine thousand euro and definitely getting a yeah, of course I would have done it. Like I and and I wouldn't have questioned it. But the point is that it's it's not. It was it was. 9000 euro for possibly 20% chance of getting a baby and that didn't seem to me to be a very uh, good basis for making a decision.
0: Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Another aspect around which I think women are very silent often is um is miscarriage. I think It's very hard actually to go through life without hearing indirectly um, or directly about women who've had a miscarriage and have gone back into work, said absolutely nothing, continued on and only months later for you to discover that they've been through this and then as a listener, you actually don't even know how to behave because there's no context for it. It doesn't even figure. You don't know whether they want to talk about it. It's, It's... it's not treated in the way bereavement might be treated. It's in a void. Uh, So that crops up in your book as well.
1: And I think using the word bereavement is exactly right. That is what it is. And it's a bereavement of the future as well. And that's what's so hard. I mean, it's and miscarriage falls under that remit of some of the things why we are silent, not just because of cultural pressure, but also emotional pressure. I mean, you're so caught up about it that it's really really hard to say it out loud and you don't really want to and so then it goes a while goes by and then it can feel very artificial to say it and but I often compare it as, I say you know if somebody breaks their leg right it's a it's visible but it's not not to do with any great sense of loss but you know we treat it in a very particular way like you get time off work you know you're everybody reacts around you in with with compassion and with support and with care and so on. And miscarriage is invisible. And so unless you articulate, but you have to, the pressure is upon you then to, set, to bring it out into the light. And as you say, people don't know how to react. And that's, I mean, we're not, we're not that great around death in this country. I think because we're very good at funerals, we think we are very comfortable and we're not that brilliant. And it's really hard to know what to say. And my sister always says, my sister lost a child and um, her daughter... And she always said that actually the worst thing was people who, because they didn't know what to say, which is completely natural, said nothing and stayed away or didn't text her or, you know, contact her. And it was because of that kind of awkwardness. And she always says, I would so much rather that somebody said the wrong thing than they said nothing at all. And I, you know, I think of that and I think that, Actually, having gone through that experience, hopefully makes me a little bit better at knowing how to react to others. Because most people just want you to say, I'm so sorry. Um, Because what else is there to say? Um, and, And, you know, and to help if you can. But yeah, the miscarriage thing is, I think part of it for me was that I felt like I was just meant to get over it. And it took me years. And then I thought, am I blown this out of proportion? you know? And my partner said, he said, it's because you didn't have the happy ending afterwards to put it in context and proportion say, well, I had a miscarriage, but then I had a healthy baby. So, you know, to balance it out. And, um, and so it just became, I had a miscarriage and there was nothing else. And so it became harder for me to say. And, and now I'm getting to the point where I've published a book and I've talked as openly as I can about it, hopefully so that it can be of help to anybody else who's going through that. And now I'm getting to the point that I think I probably need to move on from talking about it and, and because I don't want it to define me anymore.
0: Yeah, because the process of um, talking through a, a subject reanimates the subject and maybe causes you to start dreaming again about it or to go home and start thinking again about times you've been through. So... We all fall into sort of routines of thinking, if you like, and it can be quite dangerous as well. So like it is, as you were saying, it's important to know when to let something go. Um, but has the book been cathartic, though? I mean, you know, apart from the fact that it's been wildly successful, uh, translated into 12 languages and still emerging in various countries. But do you feel that it is a, a sort of um, a, a closing of, of a particular chapter of your life and enabling you to to begin again? I think two things.
1: The first is, as you say, it is quite cathartic and it does feel great, not great as overselling it maybe, but it does feel quite powerful to admit to vulnerabilities and to say out loud that or to put on the page the things that I didn't talk about for so many years. But the other side of it is, again, as you say, to write about it requires me to reanimate all of those emotions and that has been very hard. So there's this kind of constant tension between the positive effects of it and sometimes making yourself vulnerable just feels vulnerable and working out how to judge that and and balance it. And, you know, sometimes because I have written so much about my life, I think that people, when I do events or interviews or whatever, people think they're entitled to ask any question then as a result you know or to know anything about my life and I have to actually get to the point where I say no this is my personal boundary and I you know have to look after myself in this way.
0: Yeah I could totally see it on that front. One of the things though about the book that I really love about it is that yes it's a book that women will really relate to but men have really been coming to this book as well uh, because they're hearing about it. And on the most recent podcast that I did for my Roots Are Showing, I interviewed the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donahue, who was raving about the book. And also when I went onto to Amazon.com recently to have a look at uh, the reviews that you've been getting, there was a lovely review from a man and he just said, as a 70 year old man, I would not have thought this book was for me. I picked it up, read a few paragraphs and was hooked. It is a book for me after all. These are most particularly the author's stories, but also women's stories in general. It turns out that they are also universal stories about how we live our lives, male or female, young or old, often in silent anguish, not quite knowing where all that anguish came from in the first place. So this book spoke directly to me and to my life in a way that I would not have expected. And perhaps the author would not have expected either. Which I thought was just a really lovely, lovely review. So have you had men coming up to you and saying, you know what? You've explained something about myself to me as well.
1: Yeah, I have. And I mean, every time somebody says that to me, I'm a bit taken aback and then also grateful. And, you know, I did get a I got an email from um, or not an email, sorry, a card um, from a man in his 60s who said, you know, I'm probably not your target market. And, And I thought probably not. But how brilliant That is, and also how ridiculous it is that we think, oh, only women will read books by women. I mean, you know, that marketing idea is just dead in the water at this stage. Yeah, it is fantastic. And I think that's what reading and writing can do. is to connect us up so that you can, in reading, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, in reading you can experience someone else's life and perspective on the world and how important that is in terms of thinking outside of our own brains. And I think that, that point about the universal quality of it is that we deal so much and we hear so much on the news about division and boundaries and how actually you can overcome that not in a big political way. I mean, we have, we're, I'm not trying to be utopian about this, but in a very human way by reading somebody else's story. And I, I find that exceptionally inspiring. And I just, you know, I mean, I got a, an email this morning from someone in Germany saying that she'd read the book and, you know, that her life was extremely similar. And, I, and it's funny when I get emails or letters or I talk to people and they say, oh, your story is my story. And part of my, there's a voice in my head saying, well, that can't be because you can't have we cannot have lived exactly the same experience but that's not what they're talking about they're not they don't mean it in a very literal sense they mean it in that sense of kind of emotional truth and I think that very much that you know you can connect with someone from history or someone from another country or a different gender or a different age or whatever it is and think oh yeah we have something really deep in common and it's not you know that we both have brown hair or something very literal like that it's that well we both have the same reaction to an experience and that kind of solidarity is really inspiring
0: you're currently on a year off from UCD and uh, you're writer in residence at uh, Hollow Street Maternity Hospital what is that like <laughs> it's kind
1: of extraordinary I mean they're very they're very good for letting me into the place um you know, it's a building in which I've been a patient, and in which I've been a visitor to visit. Um, my niece was stillborn there, and Elena, and um, but and and to visit healthy, happy babies as well. And so, there's a kind of a, as a building, it's this Victorian building which has this enormous amount of joy and also pain wrapped up in it. And I that there's a complexity to the story there, and what I really have thought about and I've been you know, there a month and have realized is that I was really thinking of it from the perspective of the patient and the people that I have met working there since I started um, being in residence to see how much vulnerability there is for the midwives and doctors and other staff who work there as well and joy and pain for them. And I think that there's a much larger story around women's health to tell than the, than the one that we often hear because it's driven by need, right, or driven by a particular kind of pain. And my story, which I wrote about, was so singularly from my perspective that, and, and that was the only way to tell it, wasn't trying to create a kind of balanced narrative. Um, that, you know, I'm interested in th- thinking beyond that and around it and the other parameters for how, how maternity health services work in this country.
0: And do you have any comments on how maternity services work in this country that, you know, in terms of what you would change?
1: No, I mean, you know, I'm 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 just starting. Uh, <laughs>
0: not while you're right residence. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I think everyone is doing their best. And I I you know, I think is a strange thing where and I was re, I was I was reading rereading Maggie Nelson the other day, who has this incredible book called The Argonaut's About, and large, which is largely about her pregnancy. And she described Pregnancy and childbirth as both the wildest, most savage thing you will ever do and the most traditional conservative thing you will ever do to become a mother. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it that, you know, when I, I sometimes I sit in the foyer and hall Street. So if anybody sees me, come and say hi. Um, but uh, because I'm interested, you know, I see people coming in and out of the building and I see heavily pregnant women coming in to the building. And I think, wow, you are about to go through the most profound experience of your life and it is going to be it's going to push you to the limits of yourself and yet so you know this is not an uncommon experience right this is so big and so shared and and I just I think of the one I'm I'm in awe of the wonder of that that it is you know I was talking to a midwife and I was saying that I was asking she's been working hard street for well over two decades and she still gets tears in her eyes every time she delivers a baby she feels like crying with joy and I just think that's an extraordinary thing and it's as if it's become it's totally normal it's not normal it's not a normal thing at all it's an extraordinary miraculous incredibly difficult thing and that thousands of people are doing
0: a day well let's change topics slightly now and um move on to your family's reaction to the book because this is a chapter we haven't dwelt on much but the first chapter of your book is very raw and it concerns your father and your father's um, alcohol abuse. Your father himself is a very well-known writer, an award-winning critic, an author and the opening stretches of the book are pretty devastating in terms of their honesty and brutality in terms of the the mess that he had found himself in after years of self neglect so the process of both writing it publishing it and then him reading it must have been fairly tough
1: yeah i mean tough tough is more on him probably than on me um for me i found it that was the first essay that i wrote and it's as you say it's the first in the book and it was. I started writing because I needed to get it out of my head because it was just going around and around and it was very destructive and so when you say that it's raw it's because in many ways it's kind of highly edited but in other ways it's this is, this is how I feel and this is what it is like to be in a hospital room with someone who is dying. And the first line is, by the time we find him, he has been lying in a small pool of his own shit for several hours. And lots of people find that line very, very difficult. And the reason that I included it, and my father was generous enough to allow me to include it, is because I I thought that's the thing we don't talk about in terms of illness, that actually caring for someone who is is really, really sick is often about clearing up, Right the the stuff that we don't want to talk about, stuff so we'd like to, you know, hospitals are always portrayed on TV as kind of white and shining and gleaming, and that wasn't that's not the reality a lot of the time, of caring or being in hospital. My family are still speaking to me. Um, my dad and I are. It's strange, you know. He was, I sh- he read it in draft form, so I was very very clear about my family reading the book. Bef- well before it was published, they read the full draft a year before it came out. And so they had time to get used to it. And they also had time to tell me if I got things wrong, which they did. And so by publishing it, I kind of, I had their, I was, I had their trust, right? They trusted me to do it and they supported me through it. I'm not sure if my parents were wild about it, um, but actually I know that they weren't, <laughs> but they entirely allowed me to do it. I had their permission. And um, the... I would say two things, people often ask me how me and my dad are now and he just turned 70 and I went out, he still lives in Greece and I went out to Greece to be with him for his birthday and we had this really really lovely time together and I thought we could not have had this before I wrote the book because we didn't have an honest enough relationship Mm -hmm. the problem is with that is that you know when you're really honest with each other the fiction goes and so I always think Writers who write about their lives and their family, they create something and they break something. And you just have to try and hope that the thing that you make makes up for the thing that you've broken.
0: The, the issue of being the daughter of an alcoholic looms large in the book as well. And you're very interesting on, on the whole idea of that your love is being exhausted and renewed on a daily basis. As you go through life, have you developed your thought process on that in a way that enables you to deal with it better yeah I mean
1: I I spent a lot of time thinking about this and talking about it with people who I know who have alcoholic parents as well and I remember somebody saying to me she said and I quote this in the book she said it's like radical acceptance and that phrase made perfect sense to me because I went for years trying to say to my dad please stop and that doesn't work and maybe maybe there are some addicts who can stop because they see how much it's hurting their families. But my, my sense of it now at this stage is that an addict has to hit rock bottom. And that will be different for different people. Um, for my dad, it was literally almost dying and getting to the very brink of it and suddenly realising that he didn't want to die. And I think that he had been drinking himself to death quite deliberately so he had thought that he wanted to die and this was his way of getting there and then suddenly pulled back from it and it was kind of remarkable and his best friend said to me oh you know it's like it's like he wants to live again and that that was that was really what it felt like and so everything changed because before that it felt like we will do our very best but he doesn't really want to be here and he will sacrifice anything for drinking And so, you know, I would kind of go backwards and forwards between ultimatums and saying, I'm not speaking to you and trying to shut him out of my life and saying, OK, fine, well, he's not going to change. So I just have to accept him. And I remember the logic in my 20s of realizing that, OK, it would do more damage to me to not have my dad in my life than to have my very flawed father around and so I decided to live with that, but that doesn't mean that there weren't times where I would be be very very hurt um by him and and you know he was hurting himself too that's that there is there is a disease going on here, and so again, you oscillate between blaming the disease and blaming the person and what I think now is when I say that it's more honest now is that we are actually having conversations about it. Whereas previously you couldn't have a conversation because it was totally one sided. It was me going, you have to give up drink in some kind of, you know, um, demanding way, which is, I think, understandable and reasonable because I want not not just for my sake, but for his sake. Uh, and and he was not participating in that dialogue wasn't it was a monologue and uh, and whereas now it's it's very much a conversation and we can talk he you know we can talk about his the fact that he really misses drinking and I find that I think that he should be allowed to talk about that.
0: You yourself took a lot of drugs in your teen years um, during that wild period the pressure on you around your parents and the situation you're in must have been extraordinary and I, I wonder if there were ever times when you yourself had suicidal thoughts
1: the short answer is no. Um, but no. And so I would never seek to try to describe what that must feel like. I really, really, really didn't put any value on myself though. And I behaved in really self-destructive ways. Because I didn't think I was worth looking after. And I think that was pretty damaging in and of itself. And it took me a really, really long time. I mean, You know, I'm still, we're, I mean, we're all still working on it, right? This, that, you know, the way self care has become this kind of advertising slogan. But Audre Lorde started it by saying that the most radical thing you can do is to look after yourself so that you are stronger in order to go out into the world and be an advocate for people who need you to advocate for them. And, and I think that's, for me, that's much more compelling as an argument. Whereas I find, I still find it quite hard to be like, oh, I should look after myself because I'm. I should look after myself that's that that seemed that seems strange to me and and still doesn't I, I suppose you know but I, th- I think that's worth owning up to to saying that it is a process right and you don't you don't end or stop and you don't suddenly cure yourself or whatever you just if you have insecurities one day you feel good and the next day you feel well insecure and again this is about owning up to vulnerability and saying that that's not going to be the thing that totally defines me because nowadays I think well I feel depressed or crappy today but I'll probably be okay tomorrow and that I think that being in your 40s you just have that bit more experience and that bit more ability to let go of the anxiety on a good day.
0: One of the things about your book that you, you mention is that um, you know there are a lot of stories in the book that no one had heard from you and this was particularly the case around sex. I think you were saying you were around 39 when you realised that there were encounters that you had had in your life that couldn't have been described in any way as having been with consent. Through the process of writing the book and deciding to write about that again, it's just such a brave thing to do. Maybe you can take me through your feelings about putting yourself through that again in a way.
1: I think the story that I told um, illustrates the power of words and how rape was a word that when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, had a vast amount of stigma attached to it to claim and claim that as your experience was to label yourself as a victim or as somebody who should be what you knew would be stigmatized as a result i think one of the most inspiring things now is how much the conversation has changed and it is about consent as opposed to saying no which was what it always was for so long like did you say no how did you say did you, you know that you know that was the way in which you justified whether or not what had happened to you was rape and now you know I have a, a friend and colleague Charlotte McIver in NUI Galway doing really inspiring work going around the country with um consent project using drama and theater and performance to reach audiences love like you know literally thousands of teenagers and People in their early twenties and having and you know staging and then having conversations around around what consent means in all sorts of different scenarios, and I watch it and I think I'm so grateful. Like I'm so grateful that that is happening and that people are being given the language, and being told. That sex is a process. One of the things I found extraordinary about a video that they did was that it explored, it had, um, it was like a multiple choice video and you could, you were given choices, can she say yes or no at any point? And I was like, oh of course, there is again this concept that there's just one yes or one no, but actually you, there are multiple ways in which you say yes to one thing but no to another and again giving, giving kids in particular a language for that. And a way of understanding it signals and giving boys the language just as much as girls is so is so important mm-hmm. and I think um, I'm I'm just I'm really grateful that my nephew will grow up in that
0: context yeah. I'm really grateful that yourself and authors like Louise O'Neill and uh, so many more are actually you know bringing issues like this to book to stage and those conversations are being had, uh, because certainly, again, I grew up in an 80s and a 90s where definitely things happened that shouldn't have happened to my friends. I was in situations where, you know, things got kind of the, the things got kind of smudged. You know, it felt like everybody just took a decision to forget mm-hmm. about something that was on untoward i'm using the word like what a what a lovely word to use about something that is so ugly uh but it is a process of education for men and women about uh what is the nature of consent i won't keep you too much longer emily and thank you so much for taking the time on the podcast today um i would like to ask uh Almost by way of a final question about what the book has, has created in terms of the relationship that you now have with your students as Associate Professor of Drama in UCD, that they're coming into you as someone who has delivered this astonishing book that is going out around the world and is brave and honest and revealing, and also talks about gender equality in academic institutions and talks about what the expectations should be for women and men. So what are your students like with you now? Is it very different? It's funny. I mean, the book was published in July
1: very, very kindly by Trump because I had this horror of publishing the book and then having to get up and give a lecture about it the next day. And that's kind of self-consciousness. And and then I thought, you know, my students aren't going to read it you know they 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 don't you know they don't know who i am and, and all the rest and then you know i w- they, i started to realize that they were reading it and one student asked me to sign a copy for her mother you know for mother's day and so on last year and i just thought oh okay they're they're connecting they're connecting it up for a long time i was worried about the idea that that might somehow destabilize me in their eyes because here i am owning up to having had a kind of crazy childhood and, um, and and admitting to imposter syndrome and so on. And I thought, are they going to be questioning who I am? And actually now I think that probably the best thing I could possibly have done as a teacher is to say, guess what, I'm a person too. And guess what? Like I totally fucked up all the time. And that that is brilliant for them to see that you can still be happy and successful and have been through some stuff because I can't get over the things that i hear about when students come in need to me in my office and what they are carrying and they are so young and they are often carrying massive burdens and i admire them so much for doing that and there's very little that i can do to help except listen and kind of you know try and support them through it and i just i think they should know that that the pain is that you can get past pain um sometimes and that you can you can have difficult family situations and, and you can you can go on and, and have your own adult life. And so if that helps at all, that's fantastic. I mean, I just I it's funny. I nearly didn't finish school and now I'm a teacher and it's the great it's one of the great joys of my life. And I that was not never the plan. I couldn't have anticipated it. And so that is my happy ending.
0: Wonderful. Well, um, As a final question, before, by the way, I will be asking you to name a little track, a song that we can play out on uh, that you love or that you feel represents you. But uh, we haven't mentioned, I suppose, the wider context of Ireland now. And we do live in a time that, particularly in Dublin at the moment, there's a lot of um, talk and agitation about the arts, you know, that people feel that uh, cultural institutions are being um, maybe eroded somewhat to make way for the uh, the hotel monopoly and uh, we may potentially post-Brexit face into very hard times actually and of course we've got the issue of homelessness uh, continuing to spiral and the rental crisis for students getting worse and worse so you know as we look on to I suppose 2020 um, what are your hopes for for our Dublin the Dublin that you live in and that you grew up in
1: well, I'm going to sound like an old hippie now, but I think community, right? And um I was really struck by the way in which when the Dublin bus plans come out and I'm a huge fan of public transport. Um but when the Dublin bus plans came out the way in which areas and communities in Dublin started talking to each other and talking about alternative plans and famously Inchicore came up with a better plan than the one that was given to them by the consultants and I think that you know my mother has been going to loads of the meetings and meeting people and talking and you know she's on the phone to them and I just think that is actually working together and for a a greater civic good and so yeah community is I think really really important. I'm lucky to live on a street where I know my neighbours and I li- as, as we've said I lived in London for um, years and and we lived on the street and, and we didn't know the names of the other people in the houses. That is a very atomized society but in Dublin we are not there yet. Here we are in Dublin 8. We moved into the area in 1981-82 and I've seen the area change so much and it's become much more vibrant and it's become as and part of that vibrancy is because it's become multicultural and that's a really positive thing.
0: Emily Pine, thank you again and congratulations on all your success. The book, as I was mentioning, uh, notes to self is to con- continuing to come out in countries all around the world, uh, having already been published obviously here and in uh, the United Kingdom as well. Yeah, you're working on a new book, non-fiction, and... Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all to come. It's all very exciting. What track, Emily, uh, would you like us to play out on on my route of to showing today? So I'm a massive fan
1: of the outcountry um, person Patty Griffin. She's a songwriter and singer. And uh, she, I went to a gig with her in the Sugar Club a few years ago. And she was talking about her dad and how he would never tell her stories about his own life. And so she said, so it serves him right. i made up. Uh, stories about him in my songs and I heard that and I remember thinking about that when I was writing my own book not that I made up my stories but that you know you get to tell the stories that you choose to tell and that was what she was doing um, with that song so she wrote this song about him called Don't Let Me Die in Florida and I love
0: it Emily Fine thank you so much Cheers Once again, to Emily Pine, the author of Notes to Self. What about that tune, by the way? Patty Griffin. Unreal. Definitely adding that one to my Spotify most liked playlist. Emily Pine, by the way, if you are in London on November 13th, is conducting a free one day workshop all about writing stories of the self. You can go to Emily Pine's Twitter handle for more information on that. She is at Emily. E-M-I-L-I-E, pine, P-I-N-E. If you enjoyed the podcast, once again, please do consider subscribing on iTunes, writing a little review or telling your friends about it. Coming up in the podcast next time out, I'll be talking to an Irish female author who is both a very powerful writer and also a great campaigner. Really looking forward to chatting to her. As ever, I am on Twitter. You can find me there, at Nadina Regan or at My Roots R Show. And I'm also on Instagram, at Nadine O'Regan. Right, that is it from me for another little spell. Till the next time, this is Nadina Regan signing off. Do take care.